Well, today we're going to look at John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the wedding at Cana, uh, which if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you will find on page 887. The wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. And this is the first sign or miracle that Jesus does. Now if you were with us this summer, you may remember that the first half of John's gospel is built around seven signs or miracles. And that they are all pointing to Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world. Now, Jesus did many more miracles than just seven. Uh, John himself notes at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. But note that this is Jesus' first sign. Turning water to wine at a wedding. His very first sign. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, because if you are rolling out a big campaign of some sort, maybe a candidate running for office, maybe a small business owner or even a a large business getting ready to launch a new product, maybe you're a music artist and this is your, your first song, your debut album, whatever it is, what you do first matters. It sets the tone. It shows direction. It roots identity. Jesus' very first sign. He doesn't heal the sick. He doesn't feed the hungry. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't raise anyone from the dead. But rather, he keeps a party going. That's what he does. Why? Why does he choose this To be his first sign. Well that's what we're going to seek to uncover this morning. So let's pray and then we will read the passage. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in Jesus. And we pray that this morning that we would encounter him, the living word, here in the pages of the written word. And that by the power of your spirit, you would once again open the eyes of our hearts to see. And in seeing, that we would believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But, but you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this is the word of God. Well, I love the way that one of my seminary professors put it, glory likes to party. Glory likes to party. And if you are familiar with the big picture of John's gospel, you know that he bookends it here at the beginning with a wedding party. And then at the very end, there's a beach party. Jesus with his disciples having a breakfast party on the beach. Well, let's take a look at this party and see what it means. And so we're going to walk through the passage in two parts, uh, the scene and the sign. Uh, We'll first look at the scene, kind of the the big picture, what's the setting, uh, the cultural backdrop, what's going on here. And then after that, we'll hone in and we'll look specifically at this sign. What's it all about? What is being pointed to? And so first, the scene. And note when things get started. Verse 1. On the third day. Sound familiar? Okay, we'll come back to that in just a moment. On the third day. Now, this is probably the end of Jesus' first week of public ministry. Uh, Commentators put together uh, the, the scenes that we have already read through and believe that this is the end of the first week. Now, if you remember, as we have read so far, John has kept saying, on the next day, and then on the next day, and then on the next day. So why here does he not say, and on the next day? Or at the end of the first week? Why does he say, on the third day? Well, John is probably using what's known as an inclusio. That's a literary device that ancient writers would use where they would bracket off uh, parts of their writing so that they could begin and end on the same note. And so John is probably pointing us ahead later in chapter 2 to verse 19, uh, which is where we're going to be next week, but pointing us ahead, linking this story directly with Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day. And so what's happening here? Well, it's a wedding. Weddings are a big deal. We all know this. We have all been to weddings. Whether big or small, ask any bride, and they are a big deal. Now, as I was thinking about this wedding uh, this past week, uh, I was reminded of the largest wedding that I have ever been to. There were a thousand people at the reception, and the, the bride and the groom took off, left the reception in a helicopter. But as I thought about it, I remembered that we were really only all together celebrating from about 12 noon until 12 midnight. It's a half a day. But here, where Jesus is, in in this culture, this day and age, weddings were an even bigger deal. 
Uh, it, not only was it an entire community-wide event, but they would celebrate upwards of seven days together. And this wedding has got a problem because they're running out of wine. Verse 3. Now, you know, when we read it in, in our kind of 21st century eyes, we think, okay, not a big deal. You just hop in the car and run and get some more. But they didn't have that option. And not only that, but it was a major major social faux pas. This would be devastating to run out of wine, especially in, a, in an honor-shame culture. And I'm, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that, but the point is this, that if they are to run completely out of wine for the rest of this couple's lives together and, and their families, there will be a cloud of shame that will follow them, that will cover them. Well, so Jesus' mother... Uh, here's early on that the, the store of wine has run out. And so basically, hey, whatever you've got in the reception hall, that's it. Once that's gone, it's, it's done. And so she basically comes to Jesus and she says, do something. Do something. Now, we read the text together. It, it's not clear in the passage exactly what Mary had in mind. Now, she obviously knew Jesus was special. She was there when the angel came and said, you're going to have a baby. And she said, can't happen. I'm a virgin. No, the Holy Spirit is coming upon you. She knows there is something special about Jesus. She's heard him teach when he was a child growing up. But when you hear John, John makes the point here that this is the first of Jesus' miracles. The first sign that he did. And if you look at all the gospel writers together... None of them give us any record of Jesus having grown up doing miracles. So she probably doesn't have this in mind. You know, it's, she's not thinking, hey, Jesus, you know that trick you used to do at the dinner table growing up? Could, could you just do that here? Probably not what she's thinking. Now, many commentators believe, and there's some evidence, I think it's in Mark's gospel, that Joseph is probably dead at this point. And so Mary catches word, she's concerned, and so she goes, because there's no husband, she goes to the eldest son. Hey, whatever it's going to take, could you do something to help rescue this family? And then we have Jesus' response to his mom, verse 4. Addresses his mother as woman. Woman, what's this got to do with me? Now, it's not necessarily rude what he has said and it can seem brusque so really what he is doing is he's establishing a respectful polite distance from his mom at this point and then he turns to the servants verse 8 and we find that the servants do exactly what Jesus tells them to do I mean no matter how ridiculous it may have sounded Fill these jars with water. They do exactly what Jesus tells them. And I love the detail that John puts in there that they filled those jars with water to the brim. They obeyed fully, thoroughly. And then after that, we're introduced to the master of the feast. Verse 9. So, so who's, who's this guy? Well, he's, he's kind of like the events coordinator. So if, if you think about... Steve Tewksbury at the College of William and Mary. Okay, he's got to make sure that everything happens right, happens on time, it, that, that it is done well. And so this is the Steve Tewksbury of this wedding feast. 
And he is responsible for an adequate amount of wine for all seven days. Uh Uh-oh, we've got a problem. But guess what? The events coordinator never hears about it. Because all of a sudden these servants show up and he tastes this water become wine and is blown away. Verse 10. And I like that the, the way the NIV, I think it really captures the meaning. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. You have saved the very best till now. Because, friends, God doesn't do mediocre. God doesn't do mediocre. Okay, so that's the, the scene. That's the, the backdrop, what, what's going on. But let's, uh, let's shift now and take a look at the sign. So second, the sign, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, to, to start, what's a sign? I mean, we, we see them every day. They, they give us information. They point us somewhere else. So signs are not a destination in and of themselves. They are always pointing away from themselves. So if, if this is your first time to Grace Covenant, you, you have the address, you put it in your, your GPS, and you drove here, but you knew you had arrived when you saw that sign down at the bottom of the hill of the parking lot. But you didn't pull over in the grass and stop at the sign and stand there and wonder why people kept walking up the hill to this building. No, you knew that that sign was pointing you here. Okay, so, so what about this particular sign here in our passage? Water to wine at a wedding. Now, wine shows up over 200 times throughout Scripture. I mean, you might say that the Bible is overflowing with wine, because it is. You see, it's often a symbol of joy, of joy, life, celebration, gladness. In Psalm 104, the psalmist is giving thanks to God for a list of things that that God has given. And one of the things he says, he gives thanks, and I, I quote, Thank you for giving wine to gladden the heart of man. Joy is sensory and experiential. Come, taste and see, says the Lord. Wine is also a symbol of God's coming kingdom. In Isaiah 25, the prophet declares, the prophet looking ahead, looking ahead just as we are as the church today, And the prophet declares, On this mountain of God's salvation, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's the fullness of God's kingdom. It's the coming of the King. This, my friends, this is what the host will serve you. 
This is what King Jesus will gift to you and to me. The best of foods and the best of wines. Because one day, all in Christ will eat, drink, and be merry in the fullest expression of grace-infused joy. Because glory likes to party. Well, look at what Jesus used to hold the water become wine. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, uh, one of the things that we talked about briefly was the perpetual sacrificial system that God had given to his people. And so if you think about these, uh, these jars for purification, they're really hinting at the same thing. Because think about it, purification, every time they would see these jars, they would be reminded of their constant need for cleansing that they are never clean enough. I mean, I think about my own kids washing their hands. They wash their hands, and the next moment, they're dirty. They wash them again, and the next moment, they're dirty. But it doesn't just stop with kids, right? We're in flu season. And what do the experts tell, tell us is the best way to fight against the flu? Wash your hands. Not just wash them when you get up and go on through the day, but wash them throughout the day. Why? Because you shake somebody's hand, you touch a doorknob. It's that reminder there's a constant need for cleansing. We're never clean enough. Now that may illustrate the the constant need, but it, it doesn't get at the depth of what John has recorded for us here. The Jewish rites of purification. And so I was thinking this past week and reminded of Shakespeare's Macbeth. In that famous sleepwalking scene with Lady Macbeth, where she has been a part of murder, she has held a dagger, hands have been covered in blood, but it's nighttime, she has had a bath, she is in her her nightgown, she is asleep, physically clean, but she gets up, sleepwalking in the middle of the night and is wandering around, being haunted and rubbing furiously at her hands, seeing them covered in blood, out, out, damn spot. Even in the unconsciousness of her soul, she knew the depth of her sin and guilt. The same sin and guilt is in our hearts. Our hands are covered in blood too. Sin stains, and we can't get rid of it, no matter how hard we try. We can't get rid of it. But Jesus can, and he does. But how? How does he do it? Okay, let's go back to the interaction uh, with Jesus' mother. Verses uh, 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Now, we're early in the Gospel of John, and so reading this phrase, my, my hour has not yet come, it's really an enigmatic statement at first. But as we continue throughout the Gospel, one of the things that you're going to see whenever the word hour shows up in John's Gospel, most often it's referring to Jesus' crucifixion, to the cross. So basically, Jesus is saying, once I begin doing miracles, I begin the road to the cross. Jesus sees ahead. He sees his suffering and death. Because Jesus sees that there are two cups of wine in Scripture. There's the cup of joy that we talked about just a moment ago. There's also the cup of wrath. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Psalm 75, the psalmist declares, It is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Revelation 14, an angel declares, The wicked will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The wine of God's wrath against sin. The cup that we deserve. The cup that we should be served. A terrifying cup. And remember Jesus. On the night he was betrayed. Remember Jesus in the garden. Sweating drops of blood and crying out, Father. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. This is the cup that he's speaking of. This is why Jesus came, isn't it? Jesus came for this very purpose, to die in our place on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin, to drink the cup of wrath for us. But there's something else that Jesus sees. He sees something else. Because you see, what, what Jesus does at this wedding is a picture, a sign of something bigger and better and more beautiful. Because again, remember when he did it? Verse 1, when he turned water into wine? On the third day. And on the third day he rose from the dead. The resurrection And Jesus' resurrection ensures another wedding party. In Revelation 19, the gospel writer John records these words about when Jesus returns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
the great wedding feast of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's His marriage to us, the church, to all who have looked to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. Because you see, at this wedding in Cana, Jesus could see both the cross and also the consummation. He could see beyond death to delight. He could see beyond judgment to joy. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus is the Lord of joy. Jesus is the Lord of joy. And he himself said, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Okay, so that's what this sign is all about. It's about Jesus, the Lord of joy, who laid down his life for us that we might taste and see now and find hope in the fullness to come. But let me just leave you quickly with a couple of implications for your life today. First, see yourself as Jesus sees you. See yourself as Jesus sees you. Uh, Several years ago, a fellow pastor was officiating a wedding. And I love that moment of standing up at the, at the front of the worship area and the groom being beside you and having that front row seat to be able to see the look on his face when the bride enters. And so that's, this, that's how this wedding was unfolding. Uh, the, the, uh, the pastor and the groom standing at the front. And then the great moment everybody's waiting for, the music changes and the doors in the back of the worship area open and enters the bride. Well, this groom was so excited, so smitten, he turned to his pastor and he said, I'll be right back. And he took off running down the aisle after his bride. How would it change you to really believe that this is God's posture toward you? Because it is. As the psalmist says, he rescued you because he delights in you. See yourself as Jesus sees you and grow in joy. Well, second, live in the present by looking to the future. Live in the present by looking to the future. Now, some of you have heard me share before about how Martin Luther said that he kept only two days on his calendar, today and the last day, today and the consummation. And we all know that life can be hard, sometimes unbearable. And I know that some of you are more aware of this in more painful ways than others of us. But Jesus knows pain and suffering beyond what any of us could ever imagine or endure. And once when preaching on this passage, 
an esteemed uh, pastor who has now gone to be with the Lord, uh, he once said something like this. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are more fully able to taste and see his joy now as we anticipate the fullness of joy to come when Jesus returns. Dan Allender is right when he says that joy today, that joy is not an absence of struggle or sorrow, but the taste of the presence of God as he surprises us with his gracious love, whatever our circumstances. And so, brothers and sisters, let us all drink more deeply of the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, Lord of joy, we thank you this morning, this day, that you love us and gave yourself for us. That you drank the cup of sorrow that should have been ours so that we could drink the cup of your joy, both now and forever. Amen.